Hi, and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a podcast that keeps you up to date on the market and helps you make smart choices with your investments. This is part one of a two-part episode on Australasian shares. Before we get started, we should inform you that the views based in this podcast are those of the interviewees only and are believed to be reliable and accurate at the time of preparation. This podcast does not have regard to the financial situation or needs of any listener. As individual circumstances differ, you should seek appropriate professional advice. None of ASB Bank Limited, their related companies, or their directors, board members, officers, or employees, or the interviewees, accepts any liability whatsoever for any direct or indirect loss or damage of any kind arising out of the use of or reliance on the commentary provided in this podcast. I'm Chris Wilson from ASB, and today we'll be talking with Nick Dravitsky from Devon Funds. Nick, tell me a little bit about what you do at um, Devon and you know what your day looks like. Sure, so I'm a portfolio manager at, at Devon Funds, and so what that means is that um, I look after two different portfolios, both of which uh, invest in Australasian shares. So uh, one of those portfolios is um, a high concentration um, uh, small number of positions fund, and the other has a dividend yield focus. Um, but across the team, there are there are four of us who manage different portfolios with different uh, investment styles. And, and for all of us, what we do is we spend our day uh, looking at companies, so analysing companies, uh, talking to company management, running through financial reports, um, often going and visiting companies, uh, and and coming to strong views on on valuation of businesses uh, and whether we think they are appropriate investments in the portfolio. And so that can be businesses that we're already invested in, that we have a positive view on. Uh, we can be looking at businesses that uh, potential new ideas for the portfolio. Uh, and also that, that key decision, which is, you know, is it time to, to sell a position and replace it with another one, uh, which is all about, you know, has the valuation of that business moved to a level where we are no longer happy with it being in the portfolio or has something materially changed uh, in the portfolio. And tell us a little bit more about Devon, you know, the background and, you know, how long have you been in the New Zealand market and what makes Devon different? So Devon has been around since 2010. It was founded by Paul Glass, who... Uh, previously was one of the owners of Brook Asset Management, which was a uh, local Australasian fund manager specialising in Australasian shares, uh, which he sold to Macquarie in, um, in the late 2000s. Uh, after being out of the market for a couple of years, Paul came back in and established Devon. Uh, it was very small at that stage. I joined him right at the start in 2010, uh, and since then we've grown to be a business managing around about uh, $2 billion dollars uh, in uh, in local uh, assets, and as I say, that's uh, entirely invested in Australian shares. So uh, we are very much specialists in the Australian New Zealand market. Uh, everyone involved in the business has been around the Australian share market for many years, uh, and so we have a, a great deal of experience uh, with the markets. We have a great deal of familiarity with uh, the companies listed on the market, uh, and so that that is one of the core things that that we offer in terms of our. Uh, investment process and style, we're very valuation focused. So we, we do spend a lot of time looking at companies in a lot of detail uh, and aiming to build portfolios that are very focused on um, quality businesses uh, that we think are not appropriately valued by the market. ASB obviously has some really core investment beliefs that drive you know how we make decisions and, and we use them often with our customers. Do you have the same thing with Devon? 
Absolutely. So we, uh, as I say, our, our core issue, uh, our core approach is very much on that uh, valuation focus, that deep, deep analysis, uh, and that um, uh, understanding uh, the businesses that we invest in. Uh, and from our customers' point of view and our clients' point of view, uh, aiming to get as good an outcome as we possibly can. Great. And when you talk about, um, you know, obviously this deep valuation, how, how long do you give yourselves for, you know, your decisions to go the right way or, or that decision around exiting um, an asset? How long does that timeline look like? Is it a three-year outlook? Is it a five-year outlook? It tends to be a, a medium to long-term outlook. Um, I mean, the nature of, of markets is that they change quickly and sometimes there can be catalysts that drive uh, drive decisions on a shorter time frame than that. But But fundamentally what we're interested in is the valuation of the business over a, a medium uh, medium to long-term time period, which is three to five years. It was certainly a spectacular finish to the year last year with markets down you know, somewhat aggressively in uh, the final quarter. Can you give some thoughts as to what, what really happened and what drove market sentiment over that period? Yeah, you're right, Chris. It was, uh, it was remarkably, uh, considering for such a long period of time, we've had very little movement in markets. So there was a little bit of excitement in uh, January, February when, when offshore markets sold off. Uh, but apart from that, it's been a very stable year. Then all of a sudden, October, November, December, uh, particularly October and December, were very negative uh, across the world. In terms of what was driving it, um, as is always the case where markets sell off, there's, there's a range of reasons in hindsight that people, uh, people discuss. Uh, clearly there's there's a lot of uh, uncertainty around the direction of the US government, uh, issues around trade wars, um, and particularly uh, concerns around the performance of the Chinese economy. Um, and probably the one the one particular aspect that um, is maybe the largest driver uh, is for the first time in a long time there's actually a bit of concern around some of the earnings of the large US corporates. And so that really uh, started to be factored into people's valuations and you saw you saw markets start to sell off and then sell off very aggressively. But it was quite striking to see that kind of level of movement uh, and volatility come back into markets that we haven't seen for some time. It's interesting because you know, a lot of those issues or, or you know, and certainly the earnings impacts were US-based problems um, and trade wars, obviously a US-Chinese thing. And we understand the impact of Chinese challenges on the New Zealand economy given our exports there. But given they were US impacts, did you see the same effects on the New Zealand market? No, not nearly as much. So both New Zealand and Australia were weaker over the quarter, but not nearly to the same extent as in the US and in Europe. So um, in the US and Europe, you're talking down sort of 14 14 to 15 percent for the quarter. Uh, New Zealand and Australia were were mid single digits, so it was a it was far less uh, aggressive, and and that's precisely for those reasons. Um, some of the the key issues that were driving um, offshore markets were not particularly uh, relevant to a lot of the companies listed in this part of the world. What do you do? So what does Devon do when they see kind of this environment coming up and, and potential volatility in the future? You know, is it a time to pull back? Do you you know do you dive in to build positions? So we pick our portfolios very much on a stock by stock basis, and so what we're looking for is is good good stocks uh, at at appropriate valuations, and we always, we're always very focused on value. So when markets generally sell off, it can be an opportunity, but it really depends on the stocks, uh, the, the movements of the individual stocks that we are interested in, uh, and whether or not they start to represent good value. And if you do see selling in stocks, it's really driven just by market sentiment. Uh, and you think the underlying business case and the investment thesis hasn't really changed, then it can present a, a good opportunity. And so we've seen that uh, across across some of our positions. We did uh, did increase our holdings, uh, but in other cases where you are concerned about the changing nature of the environment, 
um, then you then you need to step back a bit and make sure that you are that you still have confidence in the investment thesis. And I think one of the things that's very interesting at the moment uh, and has been for for local markets is that you've had offshore sentiment driving market sell off, but uh, that's quite separate from some of the issues that have arisen locally and particularly in the Australian economy uh, and that's very much a, a function of the housing weakness over there and so it's really trying to trying to understand how should we think about these things should we be should we be worried about what's happening in the Australian economy quite separate to how global markets have moved and how does that affect uh, some of the stocks that we might be interested in buying yeah it's, it's really an interesting comment and you mentioned um, you know, Australian property and, and certainly Sydney house prices are the thing that springs to mind um you know how far down are they and and how does that flow through to the impact on the Australian economy and, and hence the stocks you own in Australia? So Aussie house prices are definitely weak and um, there hasn't yet been a been a slowing or a reversing in that trend. So in Sydney, uh, house prices are down about 11% from their peak. So their peak was mid-2017. Um, December was weak. Uh, January so far seems, seems to be pretty weak again. Uh, and clearly sentiment is very negative around housing. Um, what does that mean uh, in terms of, of stock markets? So the first area that bears the brunt is consumer discretionary, particularly retail. Um, and so you've seen a, a lot of um, a lot of selling of retail stocks, uh, listed retailers, um, and you've and you've seen that be uh, so that's been reflected in their prices. But you've also seen some of them come out uh, and say that that activity uh, has been softer, not. Not as much as you might think, given the headlines around sort of economic uh, activity and house price weakness, uh, but particularly at the high end. So, for example, companies that are involved in uh, new car sales have seen very, very weak sales, and that's consistent with the idea that as house prices decline, then people's perception of their own wealth declines, uh, and so they don't uh, they don't you know, buy those big ticket items that they, they might otherwise have bought. Um, so you see you're seeing that happen absolutely. Um, Aside from that, the big question around the market, and particularly the Australian market, which we spend a lot of our time thinking about, uh, is the position of the banks. So the banks, the four big retail banks uh, in Australia, CBA, National Australia Bank, uh, ANZ and Westpac, make up around about, not far off, 30% of the whole Australian share market. Uh, and they are about 60% uh, of their assets are residential mortgages. Uh, so clearly uh, a, a sharp fall in house prices raises concerns around their uh, their future earnings and so uh, you've seen you've seen the banks be pretty weak too which has been one of the drivers of the Australian share market being a bit weaker uh, than the New Zealand share market over the last quarter. Obviously there's been some recent news at RBNZ around increasing capitalisation for New Zealand banks. Are similar things happening in Australia? Yeah absolutely. So, so across both Australia and New Zealand the regulators have been very concerned about house price growth and so their issue isn't uh, that houses are more expensive than uh, they were a few years ago. Their issue is that that ha- that rise in prices is driven by lending, and so the banks uh, are lending more money, so they have more uh, of their balance sheet lent against ever higher prices. And and the concern, of course, is that if prices, for whatever reason, do weaken, uh, then the banks are in a position where they are they are weaker than they were previously. And so the regulators are very focused on that. Uh, in New Zealand, over a number of years, we've seen efforts to control some of that stuff. So you've seen um, them put limits on how much you can lend against a property, um, what they called the LVR restrictions, which came in uh, about three or four years ago. Uh, in Australia, you've seen similar moves, not quite the same, but they've restricted uh, and slowed down the ability of banks to lend an, on an interest-only basis without paying back any of the principal. Uh, and broadly, they have they have tried to take away some of that high-risk lending. Now, what 
that has meant is that the banks have slowed down their lending uh, and in fact pulled it back quite sharply and that's been the trigger really that, is, that has seen house prices weaken because there's just been less capacity to borrow uh, and as a consequence the ability to buy and prices uh, at the current prices has been restricted and so you've seen prices soften. Tell me a little bit more about the New Zealand house market. You know, Obviously we've seen the price changes in Sydney but what's happening more closer to home? Well so far we haven't seen much in the way of price movement here. I note that Auckland's down a little bit uh, year on year. We have seen sales start to slow um, pretty dramatically and activity uh, turnover is, is definitely has been down for a while and continues to slow. Um, the, the key issue for Auckland in particular and, and, and the New Zealand housing market is, is very Auckland focused obviously given it's such a, a large part of the population but also because house values are so much higher here than the rest of the country. Uh, it's around about half of the mortgage value uh, outstanding is in Auckland. Um, and so if you look at, um, at at what's happened in Australia, the initial trigger was was a slowdown in credit. Um, that was driven by the regulator in Australia. The regulator here is a different regulator. The question will be, is it likely that you see uh, credit availability uh, continue to slow in New Zealand? And if so, what impact will that have? Uh, and you'd have to take the view... I think that it's more likely than not that you will see some of that slowing. So uh, my base case is that we'll continue to see some weakness in, in Auckland housing over the next year or so. More recently in the news in New Zealand, there's been a lot of talk about IKEA coming to market, but in Australia, um, we've obviously had Amazon come to the market. How big an impact has that had on you know, your consumer discretionary spending and, and where that's going and the impact on existing Australian retailers? So, so far, Amazon's actual impact has been very, very low, uh, very, very small. If you think about... Uh, their total revenue, it's less than one large supermarket basically at the moment. Um, so you're not, it's, it's, it's very early days, the, but the issue with Amazon is they are obviously a gigantic business, super well capitalised, incredibly good at what they do, and they're going to have an impact. Um, where they are um, having an impact is on things around pricing. So, um, so while they, they tend to have to source locally like their competitors, their offline competitors, um, they are prepared to take very low margins, uh, and all you need to do uh, to have to have an implication on the uh, perception of some listed Australian retailers is have Amazon you know, make some comments or list some products at a much cheaper price, and 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 people start to get concerned. Uh, so absolutely wouldn't dismiss it. It's it's a real it's a real impact, and will have a real impact over time. Uh, but so far, it's 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 been it's been pretty small. Uh, one of the other things you have seen in Australia happen, though, in a, it's not in the online space, but has happened over the last few years, is you've seen the arrival of mega offshore retailers, and you've seen that happen in New Zealand too, uh, but it's much more advanced in Australia, that you just hadn't had a few years ago. So the Uniqlo's, the H&M's, the Zara's, uh, these guys have really moved in en masse into Australian retail, and um, in some ways it's very good for mall owners. It's actually been a, been a real positive for mall owners. Uh, it drives a lot of foot traffic into malls. Uh, but it's been very painful for some of the local legacy uh, listed businesses, particularly the department stores. And do you see that fast fashion model here to stay? I mean, we obviously had um, the closure, I think, of Topshop downtown in Auckland, and you know, there's but H and M now obviously uh, opening a new site downtown Auckland as well. You know, do you think fast fashion's here to stay? 
here to stay is uh, depends on the time frame what stay means but they're clearly formidable retailers they're incredibly good at what they do uh, and they are in expansion mode so for the next few years then I think they're definitely going to have continue to have a pretty big impact and so that that impact will flow through to listed listed companies in New Zealand do you think and certainly with IKEA joining the market do you think that puts pressure on warehouse going forward I think you know, the companies that are in those specific spaces, so the the clothing retailers, um, you know, are clearly facing competition. They've, they've faced a lot of competition from Aussie uh, retailers coming over over the last sort of decade, uh, but this this adds material materially to that. Um, and then yes, absolutely. I mean, any anything that is competing in that um, that direct um, um, big box furniture type of area is going to be under massive pressure when IKEA comes, if it in fact does. You talked earlier about the the growth and building or, or consensus, and we've had an expansion obviously in house prices in New Zealand with some potential slowing on the horizon. Um, you know, Fletcher Building's a slightly different scenario. Do you want to um, give some views on that? Obviously there was a lot of noise with Fletcher Building last year and it was certainly in the news a number of times. Um, you know, what's Devon's outlook on Fletcher Building and you know, can you give some background as to what happened and, and what we can expect going forward? Absolutely. Yeah, Fletcher Building, it's, it's been a pretty sad story for the last two years. So if you go back to 2016, uh, Fletcher Building had a terrific, uh, terrific run uh, in terms of its share price. I think it was the best performing stock in the market that year, uh, and that was really about um, the the building cycle um, growing strongly. And so there was you know, strongly rising uh, residential consents, strongly rising uh, activity in the non-residential space, and builders both uh, at the construction level, but but more materially at the at the building supplies and materials um, areas. Uh, you know they supply the product into those markets, so it should be a good environment for them. And if you look at how they performed over the cycle, if you strip out um, the offshore businesses, uh, they actually did did pretty well. Their earnings grew pretty well across placemakers and across the uh, the cement and the and the infrastructure businesses. And so, if Kiwi Build starts to ramp up, that's a strong tailwind for Fletcher going forward. It should be in theory. Probably the the way to think about it is that. Um, if Kiwi Build does in fact get up to speed and, and you know, builds the sort of numbers of houses that they're talking about, then it will put a floor under the, the residential activity in the next downturn um, so that you, your, your level of slump won't be as low as it, as it probably normally would be um, because you'll have this, uh, this ongoing demand from, from Kiwi Build funded by the government. But, but what I'd say about builders more generally is that um, while they were benefiting from the cycle, they made a um, some some very bad errors in being far too aggressive in bidding for big construction projects. And clearly, you know, as we all know, they've had some terrible experiences where they've uh, effectively had fixed price contracts that they have um, have you know, completely butchered in their ability to to execute, uh, and they've suffered enormous losses on those on those businesses on those um, projects. The problem with builders as you look forward is that for the last 18 months that's been a big issue around the stock because there's been a lot of concern around when that those losses would come to an end um, but you're now looking forward and the cycle while it's still while there's still plenty of activity around uh, it's hard to believe that you'll get activity continuing to grow rapidly from here and in fact um, flatter to to slightly lower is probably a more realistic outcome both here and in Australia uh, and so the attractions around uh, the stock are not nearly what they were two or three years ago when it was still benefiting from from a rising cycle. Uh, having said that, the price has come back uh, an enormous amount. Uh, the business has also uh, sold its Formica 
division. Uh, it's raised capital, uh, so it has a very conservatively positioned balance sheet, um, and uh, you know, and, and it has it, it's it's not in a position where you would worry about its ability to survive. Uh, but the excitement factor around its ability to grow earnings is is definitely much reduced. What books or podcasts do you listen to to make sure you're on top of what's going on in the world? That's an excellent question. There is a tremendous number of really great investment um, podcasts and books. I think some of the some of the classics. It's hard to go past. Burton Melchior's uh, "A Random Walk Down Wall Street" is is a wonderful book. Um, anything by Buffett is uh, is definitely worth a read. Um, I think one of the great investment books uh, in quite a different way is um, Fooled by Randomness by, by um, Nicholas Taleb. Um, but in terms of ongoing uh, up-to-date information, um, we are constantly inundated by it. In some ways it's, a, it's actually more an effort to, to, um, to weed out the irrelevance and, and concentrate uh, on on the the really simple rules, uh, and in terms of that, there's you know there's one or two um, really great investors who are capable of writing um, very succinctly two or three times a year. A good example uh, is a guy called Jeremy Grantham at GMO. Uh, he runs a business called GMO, who's just uh, an exceptional writer uh, about markets and, and and about world activity. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate you taking the time to come in today and give us your views on the markets. That's it for part one of our two-part episode on Australasian shares. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear, contact us at podcasts at asb.co.nz.